We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As always, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for the shares. Thanks for the likes. Just thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Jonathan Aberman, Managing Director of Amplifier Advisors and Dean of the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. Jonathan also hosts the show, What's Working in Washington. Jonathan comes from a family of entrepreneurs, but his parents wanted him to go to college and join a profession, which he did. But the entrepreneurial bug caught up with him. As a lawyer, he worked with many startups and entrepreneurs and has started a venture capital fund as well. Now he's helping to redesign education by leading an innovative new program at Marymount University. Jonathan has a lot of insights into the life of an entrepreneur and what qualities entrepreneurs can offer large companies and small companies. Entrepreneurs need to be motivated by more than just money. Most entrepreneurs have a strong belief that they can make a difference in the world. Entrepreneurs can, contrary to what many people believe, work in larger structures as long as they were treated with respect and are appreciated for what they have to offer. In fact, entrepreneurs as leaders can be really good culture creators for businesses, especially if they employ a servant leader model. As the Dean of the School of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount, Jonathan is also aware that companies are not so much interested in a graduate's degree as their skills. And with the increasing in automation of tools, creativity is going to play a huge role in both an individual and a company's success. Now, let's get better together. Jonathan Aberman, welcome to the podcast. Well, it is great to be here. Um, I'm always up for having an opportunity to talk to to you. I mean, you're fighting the good fight now to get good information out around marketing and building stories. I mean, I love it. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. 
Well, me too, because we got introduced by Sean Gold, who was my 100th episode, and he fought really, really hard to be 100. So, <laughs> yeah, I, he, he's really good at those those bits. When I met him for the first time, he said to me, "You know, my biggest claim to fame is." And I said, "What?" He said, "I high fived Alex Trebek," and so you're traveling good company. Uh, uh, you're 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 getting these milestones. It's good. I know, I know, yeah. I love it, I love it, and it's always great to you know talk to people that are like have the same kind of ethos I have about entrepreneurship and you know you've done and are doing so many things I mean you're dean of Marymount College of Business Innovation Leadership and Technology out you know outside of DC you know you're the director or managing director of Amplifier Ventures you've done you've got your own show what's working in Washington I mean you've got more jobs than I do and I <laughs> that was my fiance now loves to say she's like what do you do for a living anyway cuz she uh She's chosen a different path than the entrepreneur path, but uh, hey, I hate to tell you that uh, you know that is the curse of the entrepreneur is that everybody thinks that we have a really easy, interesting life, but nobody actually has any idea what what we do. I'll tell you just a funny story. My life as an entrepreneur, uh, I was trying to explain to my kids when they were little what what I did, you know, and and I just could never get them to quite understand. And and one day I'd been involved in putting together a. Uh, a deal that became uh, Betty Crocker cake make uh, the, the frosting. So I'm in the supermarket with my kids and say, Hey kids, dad did this. And my daughter, who was, I think seven at the time looked at me and said, you're a baker. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, a couple of years go by and another couple of involvement goes public and I come home proud. I show her the prospectus and now she's 10. I'm like, look, I forgot a prospectus. Daddy did this. She said, you're a writer. <laughs> so, and then a few years went by and Shark Tank was on TV. Yeah. And one yep, day we're yep. walking Shark Tank and she's, and I said, dad does that. She said, oh, you're a shark. And I said, I'll, <laughs> take, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> exactly. But, no, I mean, that's but anyway, I, I digress, you know, look, I, I think that um, uh, it really, when you cut through it all, people who have entrepreneurial personalities are, are heavily motivated, motivated by self-actualization and, and getting their getting their hands dirty and making change and making a difference. And uh, you know, a lot of people confuse entrepreneurial characteristics with oh, it has to always be profit motivated. It has to be involving a startup. And I think it's really important to separate the two because people who are entrepreneurial uh, can be really, really effective as media personalities, as faith leaders, as uh, working within large organizations and in lots of different ways. But ultimately. They have a North Star, and here's what I'm getting to. My North Star has always been, I, want to make, I wanted to make enough money to support my family, and I wanted to make a difference. And I was willing to take on the risk of doing that. And if you have that kind of personality in our society, you tend to gravitate towards the parts of our society that value that. So I started out my life, you know, my family, both my parents owned their own business, my grandparents owned their own businesses. So they were, of course, hell bent that I should be a professional. So they didn't, I shouldn't be an entrepreneur. So they spent a buck ton of money to get me really, really well educated in some really fine uh, universities. And I pursued the sort of the, the mainstream path that they had set out for me uh, through my late 30s. I was managing partner of a couple of law firms, uh, East Coast Operations. I'd worked at Goldman Sachs, the investment banking industry. And I was really, you know, representing Carlisle. I mean, 
and God darn it, I want it on my business. And uh, I went and to my, my dad had deceased, but I went to my mom and said, I'm going to start a venture capital fund. And, and she looked at me as like, you're throwing it all away. And I said, well, I, maybe so, but here's a newsflash. It's my life after all. She didn't talk to me for 18 months, truly. But, wow. but you know, the thing about it is, is so why did I gravitate there? there? Because in our society, if you're in startups, um, you can you know, we trivialized, changed the world, but we were involved in making a difference. And once I got out of practicing law and I got into this world of helping entrepreneurs start businesses, and I was an entrepreneur myself, it opened up all these doors. You know, it opened up the opportunity to teach in an academic setting. It opened up the opportunity to work with politicians as a policymaker and all these other things. And, and I think that really the moral of the story is you can look at a career like mine and you can either conclude there was some big pattern or plan. And the answer is no, there was just a North star. I want to make a difference and make a living. And, uh, and then you say, well, how does it all fit together? And the way it fits together is every one of the things I've done, including my current gig at Marymount, where we're making enormous changes in how education's done. Um, it's all based on the same thing, making a difference, working with great people, but funnily enough, ultimately serving a customer. And maybe that's, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. uh, and as long as I'm, you know, as long as I'm in a position where people value that, I find interesting things to do. And, and then, you know, fortunately I'm making a living and life is interesting. And, you know, that's what it comes down to really. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, I, I've heard someone say the, uh, in the, the thing I use is like, you know, entrepreneurs want to build an independent life that completes them. Mm -hmm. um, because they're unemployable, <laughs> one says, right? Uh, and that's always like a, a joke, but you know, we're not big company folk at all. Well, uh, well, what's interesting is what I'm finding uh, is I've so I've been in large structures and been entrepreneurial in large structures, and at least hmm. speaking for myself, um, I can be happy being in an entrepreneurial larger structure if I'm in a larger structure that is accommodating. Uh, and supportive. And that, that doesn't mean that I get to do whatever I want. It means that as long as I explain to my bosses what I want to do, they'll support me going off and doing it. And I, and I think that for that reason, and a second reason, entrepreneurs are really good culture creators, because the most successful entrepreneurs tend to be very empathetic people, mm -hmm. which makes them excellent servant leaders in my experience. And mm -hmm. service leadership is really, really effective in large organizations if the, if the head of the organization values servant leadership, right? Right, so, right, right. Yeah. So, so my experience, you can be a really great entrepreneur working with other people, but you're going to have a really hard time as an entrepreneur working for somebody else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I think in my own career, and I bet it's true for you as well, we're not always the big dog, but we've got to be working with big dogs who get us. And, yeah. and I think that's really how I would describe it. It's not that we can't work for other people, but we have to be in a position where we're able to satisfy our Jones for mattering and being respected. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> no, it's so true. I mean, I always also characterize it as, you know, someone comes to me with an idea. And I'm like, I'll be the first to believe in your wacky idea. I mean, if it's a decent wacky idea, but I'll be the, I'm, I go, I believe. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, I know this is going to be a zig and a zag. I just know that this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. But you have a kernel of something, which means I believe in you that this is going to, something like this is going to happen. And not a lot of corporate structure, if they're not geared this way, 
do that because it's cor- corporations in one sense have to, they're worried about the next two quarters out. They have to, they have fiduciary responsibility to not be, you know, yahoos, right? Cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always kind of think from an analogy, from a military analogy that, you know, entrepreneurs are sort of like the special forces, right? Like we sort of get left alone, we get our job done and people are like, oh, can we rein them in? And when you rein them in is when things go complete disaster, right? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, somebody I've gotten to know here in the DC area uh, is uh, General Stan McChrystal. And ah, Stan uh, was, if you've run across him, you know, ah. he, and uh, I've gotten to know him over the years and uh, he ran special, basically ran special ops during the, the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. And um, he is a big believer in the power of distributed teams and pushing, you know, being servant leader. And and his yeah. view is that that's the right model for large organizations as well. And, you know, it is really interesting, I think, and we're seeing it in the world today is that <clears throat> It used to be, you know, if we were in this conversation 20, 30 years ago, the idea for great management was you created a sustainable advantage, you know, competitive advantage. And the idea was to protect it freaking forever. Never yep. let go of it. Let it yep. You know, out of your cold, dead hands, you give up your competitive advantage. But then, you know, you look at companies like um, uh, compare Eastman Kodak, who invented yeah. digital film and then went out of business because nobody wanted to buy regular film. Compare them with what Microsoft's done. Right. You know, or IBM. I mean, you can you can change as a large organization, but you have to be willing, as you say, to tolerate and and reward rogue behaviors because yeah. rogue behaviors is necessary to change an organization. Yeah, it's what, what's where innovation happens. I think he he wrote Team of Teams, right? Yes, McChrystal. Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. I read that yeah, one. Really I, 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 yeah, I heard I heard him interviewed on a bunch of podcasts. Really, I mean, yeah, super insightful you know i always appreciate the the folks in the military who like almost like the warrior poet you know like okay our jobs to you know kill yeah. people and break things but you know we got to be a little more you know thoughtful on it like that's why i love i think it was called the mother of all press conferences by schwarzkopf mm-hmm. uh, and it, and it, people should look this up because it's a it's a, it's actually a master class in how to lead and how to give a press conference so as a pr professional i'm like if you can do what he did during, you know, I think it was February 1991, roughly about, you know, the Gulf one, I mean, it's just masterful about how he handled everything the way a good leader and is very intellectual about it. And as well as I got the responsibility of all these people, like I got to kill people and break things. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking about uh, a, a friend of mine who's a successful entrepreneur here and down that is a CEO of a company called IDME that's growing really, really nicely. And um, he was a ranger and, uh, in uh, Iran, Iraq, not Iran. <laughs> Third of well, winter. he might have been in Iran, well, but I mean, no I mean, one will I mean, ever I mean, know. I can't really say, but, but the, <laughs> yeah. the punchline is one day I said to him, so um, um, how do you deal with the stress of being an entrepreneur? And he looked at me and he said, once you've been in, in, in war, and you've had to make peace that you could die at any moment. There's nothing about entrepreneurship that's scary. And I thought, okay, I got nothing. You know, I mean, just, but it makes sense. Yeah, look, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned the military. Um, I think that the military always has had a large effect on management theory. Yes. And if you go back yes. to, uh, right, the aftermath of World War II, where the United States won the war largely because of a very hierarchical top-down approach to warfare. You know, how to get 
you had to build a nuclear bomb and 100,000 people working together to build you know, the Manhattan Project. But then the way the war was won in the, in the West and uh, in the Far East, it was all large groups coordinated under a single you know, hierarchy. And so corporate America was all about command and control structures up through the 70s into the 80s. But now we're in a world of asymmetric warfare, you know, terrorism, uh, cybersecurity and all these things. And it's now nimble. You know, you can't, it can't be centralized. And so as a result, a lot of the people coming out of the military now are really, really very different kind of leaders. You yeah. Know, decentralized um, command. You yeah. Know, you, you hear a lot about that from Jocko. Willink, mm-hmm. who who has like I don't know how many billions of books that he's written on on yeah. all that and and it's interesting because you know when the stakes are life and death like okay mm. someone's gonna die if I screw up or you know we have real stakes like like you know because the attitude I always had like at corporate was I was just could not understand these random deadlines and well everyone was so bent out of shape that we missed some deadline or whatever. I'm like, no one's shooting at us. We're not going to die. This is like, these decisions are reversible. And boy, did everyone say I had a bad attitude, which I did. I was very glib and had bad. I'm like, well, this is random to me. Like I didn't understand it. And, but, but the thing that I think it was really powerful about, you know, the, not only reading history and 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 how entrepreneurship came about and and you know the 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 parallels but then the differences between military and conflict i mean business is not war at all there's just like nothing that can compare to war so don't even compare it it the best analogy is maybe a sports team or whatever but but it but the the principles of leadership and the thought process and this decentralized control this asymm- asymmetry of mm-hmm. wow like if you're a big company startup that's the insurgent. It's going to crush you if you're not exactly nimble right. enough to, to attack it as an example. So that's, I think that's a great example. And I think yeah. that uh, many startup entrepreneurs um, have more in common with somebody who's parachuting behind enemy lines and maybe a little bit. You touched on something else, which I think is a really interesting point. As you talked about your experience there of working at a company saying, guys, it's not the end of the world. You need to chill. You're revealing something I think very important, which is entrepreneurial people hate inauthentic inauthentic leadership. Yeah. We we are much more willing to call BS. And so that's I think where we tend to get in trouble, which is people create artificial deadlines, people create artificial deliverables to make themselves feel important, make them feel special, and and ultimately you can see through it. And and so yeah. I think one of the right so I think one of the big yeah. lessons again people have this tendency, oh well entrepreneurs can't work with other people. Entrepreneurs you know what? Put an entrepreneur in the middle of an organization. And, and if they're effective, you probably have a very healthy corporate culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and yeah. And, and if you need something innovative, like, again, you need the, I believe people. I mean, I remember yeah. working at Cypress Semiconductor, which is my, one of my longest corporate gigs It's a semiconductor company working mm-hmm. on Bluetooth and all these like chips. Yeah. I was a chip engineer. Everyone, I talk about it, but you got, time. but you got better and that's what matters. Yeah, I got better. <laughs> I did. Yeah, exactly. Cause boy, I sometimes miss slinging Silicon, but then I'm like, nah, it was pretty stressful. Yeah, okay. But it's like me with the law. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I miss it, but now I'm better enough for now. But I remember I was put in charge of this task force to figure out how to accelerate the schedule to design chips. And this was back in the nineties, like in the, actually the late nineties. And one one of the, the culture Cypress culture was akin to it was pretty brutal. It, it, this was not touchy feely. Like four letter acronyms were swung all the time. The CEO would say the F word, every other word, right? Like it, 
this was not like touchy feely. I mean, he yeah. would probably get thrown in jail for what he used to say to us. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I remember I had done this entire analysis on how we could accelerate designing chips through blo- this thing called block-based design. And I spent a lot of time, I went all over the company and did all these analysis. And I remember I'm presenting it to all these VPs, right? My VP, I won't even name his name. He knows who he is if he listens, <laughs> but uh, I won't embarrass him. But I, I, I'm presenting this and I go through it all and I'm like, okay, I think, you know, we normally do this in 33 weeks. I think we can get it down to 17. And mm-hmm. they look at me and they're like, oh, well, that's not good enough. And I'm all, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, I, I did all this. He's like, he's like, has to be 13. And I'm all, 13. It's like, yeah, we want to do it within a quarter. And this just ticked me off because it's like, that's almost impossible to do. Right. And I said, I looked at him, I said, okay, how about 11? And he looks at me and he's like, 11. Well, that's just unrealistic. I go, it's the next prime number down from 13. If we're just going to make shit up, why don't we just make it up really big? You know, like I, I, I mean, I said this in front of a whole group of people. It's the kind of person I am. Right. Did not go over well. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) But that's what I mean. Like there's, it's like a random number. Like what, you know, you can only so because they're the, the culture was to push as hard as you can and be so sure. aggressive because they thought everyone sandbagged. Yeah. But yeah. every project, every project in the entire company was always late. So you're like, it's futile, you know? Right. And for someone with an entrepreneur mindset, you're just like, this is stupid. And I left. <laughs> so, but 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 that's hey, to your point, right? I don't blame it. Yeah, absolutely. That that is exactly my point. You know, people often say to me, "How do I know I'm an entrepreneur?" And the answer is, you know. <laughs> and you know. People say to me, "How will I know if I'm an entrepreneur?" My answer is, "You're not." You know, if you're if you're asking me if you're an entrepreneur, you don't have an entrepreneurial personality. You know, you've got a, you've got this itch you need to scratch. It's just a question of how you're going to scratch it. But uh, exactly. you know, look, we've talked a lot about within organizations. I think it's you know peel back. I mean. You and I were talking about this before we started the podcast. I mean, ultimately, what makes somebody entrepreneurial, what makes it so awesome ultimately is um, people who are entrepreneurial do have a very strong belief that they can make a difference and mm-hmm. and they're willing to lay it out there. You know, there's few things and let's separate entrepreneurial people from entrepreneurs, you know, mm-hmm. and we got a lot of them in the community right now because there's so much money floating around. Yeah. People who are really sincerely entrepreneurial. I think are they are generally incredibly brave and authentic people, but they don't ask anybody else to do anything they won't do, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 I think that um, for people who don't get it, they again they look at us and say, "You're unmanageable. You're this. You're that." But they just don't get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we're the artists of the business world. Yeah, I do too. If 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 if, if I could use another analogy, because I think the artist who in general society, I mean, you know, just generally, I think that's art is what makes life worth living and, mm-hmm. you know, music, like what you do, some yeah. music, but it, but it's this creative force that's a little bit risky, right? Like it may not work out, you know, like I write books, right. And writing is horrible sometimes because <laughs> you're like, uh, you know, like I'm working on a memoir right now about my life with Jane, you know, my late wife, which yeah. I, we talk about all the time. And like, I have a memoir coach and I've been working on this for four years and she reads through it and she's like, yeah, we got to change some stuff. And I'm like, I've been working on this for four years. How could I, what did I do wrong? Cause you know, like it's okay. But like the art in it is like, oh, I have to 
you know, and so I'm working through this. But you can't not, right? exactly. but you can't not do it. Right. You know, yes, that's the thing. Yes. So, so my brother, exactly. So my brother and I are both musicians. Uh, and, uh, you know, the difference is that uh, I, I wasn't prepared to be yet another guitar player. I mean, I was, and I still play well, but I was never going to be Eddie Van Halen. Uh, you know, I was never going to be a genius. I was just going to be a competent sideman. And he was a drummer and he just he stuck with it. He's played a lot of famous people over the years. He's, he's made a living doing that. But it's not, it, we often, as we've gone through life, we're often uh, really interested in how similar our lives are in a lot of ways, you know, and uh, we're both always scraping for the next gig. You know, you're always figuring out who do you get along with well so you can do this stuff together. It's, it's intensely creative. It's just, you know, so people sometimes say to me, what's the thing in your life that you've done that's most similar to putting a startup together or living a startup and say, it's simple, a band, putting yeah. a band together, yeah. sitting around late at night, fantasizing about, you know, the record contract or it, yeah. it's the same as sitting around, oh, we're going to get a VC round. It's the same behavior. Yeah, right? I agree. I totally yeah. agree. I totally agree. Yeah, it's a great analogy because, you know, putting the band together is all about each piece working together in concert and being bigger than the sum of its parts. Like I was watching the Queen documentary, you know, Adam Lambert's now singing with Queen. I mean, like, you know, Freddie Mercury, right? Like, how are you going to, you cannot step in that guy's shoes. I mean, yeah, it's pretty ballsy. It's Freddie Mercury. But yeah. this guy, Adam Lambert, who who got, who got, that was the runner up on American Idol, turns out probably the best thing that ever happened to him. His attitude about it, and I think it's Brian Mays, the guitarist, his, and I don't, I think it's Rogers, the drummer, and yeah. his attitude about it was just yeah. stellar. Like, that's the guy I want on my team, Adam Lambert and Brian and Roger, because mm -hmm. they're like, oh, it's, I mean, it's devastating. You lose one of the best frontmen in the world whose vocal range is just astonishing. They had their, their range of music is just, I, I can't, you can't, I mean, they play yeah. 100,000 venues, right? And this guy steps in and says, well, you know, I'm going to sing the songs. I might as well I try to make them mine. You're like, ah, but he pulled yeah. it off. That's right. Because he That's believed right. and they believed in him. And the alchemy of it all is like, it's, it's a cool thing to see. That's, that's the spirit of the entrepreneur, right? That's, that's like the Grateful Dead. I saw another, you know, documentary about them uh, for whatever reason, I'm on into musical documentaries. And, you know, there, there, there was, uh, it's, I think it's Bill Weir is the other guy. They call Bob him the Weir. other guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. right. Yeah. yeah. The other guy, the guitar player. Yeah. Um, or Bob Weir, Bob Weir. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and I'm sorry, Bob, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, if he is listening, get him on the show. Yeah, I know. Cause yeah, right he's pretty yeah, awesome. Exactly. He lives up in Marin. Um, there you go. And, but same thing, like, yeah. you know, he's 16 when he joins the grateful dead and the way the grave, I mean, the best, I don't know, traveling jam band, whatever you want to call ever. Them, without ever. question, without question, yeah. like check, right? Like the best mm -hmm. live band ever. And the following. And so as an entrepreneur, you look at that and you go, gosh, how do you do that for a company? And, and that, you know, there's, yeah, that's the well, alchemy. That is the alchemy. And, and it's why uh, you will often hear uh, investors say that they, they bet the, uh, they bet the jockey, not the horse mm -hmm. or you, you bet the team. Uh, and this is why you'll often see, and you know, you see this in the Valley. I certainly see this here in the DC market teams work together more than once, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I think that it's, um, 
uh, it's very much as you describe the, the creative creativity as a group works if people are respectful if they're empathetic to each other and they also are, are intentional about how they build the team like you wouldn't build a rock band with four bass players no right you, you build a rock band with one bass player and a guitarist or whatever but that's number one but number two is you think about what kind of bass player i want right, right? you know and 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 there's so a lot that goes into it you know? and so i think that what happens a lot uh i see this happen a lot over the years is people start out and they're like well I want to start a business. I obviously can't do it by myself. Everybody's telling me to be a founder on your own is terrible. And by the way, they're right. There are few things as lonely as being a sole founder of a business. Yeah. So, so they run out and they immediately find a college roommate or somebody they met at a networking event and they fill the team with three or four or five people. And then they go off and, and try to raise money. And there's no rhyme or reason to why they're together. And most of the time it doesn't work. Because the bass player they've hired likes to play, you know, rockabilly and the guitarist is heavily into Van Halen and the drummer only wants to play Broadway show tunes. I mean, it just doesn't work. And uh, so um, we would, I think, do our entrepreneurial uh, friends a much greater service. And we said, if you really understand that you should find people who know what you don't know mm. and people who you can get connected with on some things you know together mm. instead of because it doesn't work i mean if you and i had nothing in common it doesn't matter if we got to, it that won't work either there has to be a frame of reference yeah but like you know you you know if we were starting something out i'd be like all right jonathan you you suffered with lawyers too long you deal with the term sheets and i'd say all right jerry you go off and and you know you deal with figuring out what the uh what the vision of the company is and then we get together and compare notes that's the way that's why you start a business yeah right yeah. or with a great cto you know like CTO has got to understand that he's not going to know how to build a vision. He's got to build the product that the vision can sell. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Good, that's a very good, that's a very good point. So, so what, what sort of the, you know, what are some of the things that you've seen, you know, you're, you invest in companies through mm -hmm. Amplifier. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what are some of the things you try to mentor some of these founders in like, Hey, that might not be the right guy, gal, like how, 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 how does that process work? Because, you know, I've, I've been at a couple of accelerators. I've been at 500 startups and Launchpad Digital Health. And typically when you go to an accelerator, you already have a product, you have a little bit of product market fit, you got a little bit of revenue, but you're still trying to figure out the actual product market fit. And then the go to market strategies, always how to scale and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And usually mm -hmm. the people that get you to product market fit may not get you to scale. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, it's very rare that you actually find somebody who's good at both. Yeah. It, it's a tough thing. I mean, yeah. and, and there's an ego thing involved with that too, because, you know, you're like, yeah, I could do it all. But once you really realize that like, okay, like for me, I realized I'm really good at like, the muddy middle, the valley of despair, mm -hmm. like the part where we're going from product market fit to a to scale, like we're about to pull up, like that piece in the, that thing, it's like the muddy middle that like, it's so hard to figure out. Like, I love that. The, yeah. Like build it from, okay, a hundred million to 200 million. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> or, I understand. Or even, you know, you know what I mean? One, one of my closest friends here uh, in town is a really, really successful, I mean, guy, I just should just invest everything he does, but you know, he joins companies as their first real sales lead. Hmm. 
you know, they've, they've been, they have product, they've been going around, but he's the guy that comes in and builds the sales team. And he has an unerring ability to create a professionalized sales effort that ultimately scales a company, but he's not a startup guy, but yeah. he's the most successful entrepreneur. I, I, I pretty much know yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. because he knows what he's good at. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's funny you ask me about that in the context of accelerators, uh, because one of the interesting things about many accelerators these days is they really become disguised venture capital funds. Yep. And so as a result, they don't really create an environment for creating the kind of relationship with a founder where the founder is going to be really open to the kind of vulnerability they need to be open to that kind of advice along the lines of your founder, co-founder is not a good fit for you, or this investor is not a good investor. You know, so, so what I think is generally, um, so when I, so Amplifier is, you know, basically is, was, I, I, and invest wealthy people's money, you know, sort of family offices, you know, and I've helped put deals together. And uh, we've put 16 or 17 companies together over my career. And, and in each of them, we were the first money and we really were there at the absolute beginning, like real old school seed investing. When, and, you know, at that moment in time, you really are in a moment where you're helping the entrepreneur really figure it out. I'm working with a couple of startups right now as advisor and I've been with them. I mean, these are pre-revenue, some revenue. So I have the kind of relationship with the founder will say, what do you think about this person? What do you think about this investor? So in my experience, you either find yourself there early at the stage of really at the beginning and you develop that kind of trust relationship or the other place where you can find it is once the company is starting to scale and, and they just want professional advice. So I, I've seen really, and again, this, you know, this is not my world. I was, when I, when I see expansion deals now, it's largely as a friend. I didn't, I've never invested in an expansion deal, but my friends who do develop really close relationships with the founders because they need somebody who's been through an exit before, mm. or somebody who's been through a public offer before. So they're vulnerable in that moment too. Mm. And in between most entrepreneurs, I think, uh, particularly ones that've gotten funded, have what I call balance sheet hearing loss, <laughs> which is <laughs> when they're funded, they know everything, and when they don't, when they're running out of money, they are looking for advice everywhere they can find it. But it's not sincere. They're just, how do I? I'm, I'm drowning here, you know. Mm-hmm. And the time to really formulate really good trust relationships, I think, is when there's nothing at stake, mm-hmm. or things are professionalized to the point where. You can afford to be a bit vulnerable because they can't fire you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, the other part of it though is is, and I'm sure you find this too. And you know, when you mentor, is coachability. Mm, I mean, that's a very good point, yeah. right? I mean, what what every angel investor, every VC, whatever human who wants to work with a startup entrepreneur really is looking for is, is this going to be a rewarding personal relationship? And what makes it rewarding for a mentor is, am I making a difference? It's called, so if you got a founder who's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, old guy, I'm going to do what I want. I don't know. I got no time for that. Right. You know what I mean? And so um, I I think that would be, you know, if you really want to get people on your team, be authentic and be sincere and be open to advice and be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's funny. You should mention that because, uh, you know, I'm on the Blue Wire podcast network, the show, um, and I helped Kevin, who's the founder of Blue Wire CEO, 
kind of helped him start Blue Wire. And uh, I remember when he applied to 500 startups, I introduced him to Clayton over there, who's the venture partner. And I remember we were, Clayton and I are talking about Kevin and, you know, I don't know if he knows this, maybe he listens, I don't, he probably doesn't listen to the show. He's too busy making Blue Wire this Good best, best, yeah. best media company on the planet. It's really doing great. I'm so proud of him. He's doing, he's now exactly the, yeah, yeah, he's exactly right. the kind of founder, young founder you want. Exactly. And, and Clayton's like, I'm talking about, Hey, you know, podcasts, Clayton's like, yeah, Kevin's coachable. <laughs> and I'm all, yeah, he is, isn't he? He's like, yeah, that's really good. I'm all, that's a really good thing to have because, really you know, I remember when, when he first started it, like he didn't know what he was, I mean, you know, who knows what, he didn't know what he was doing, but boy, did he, he handled it like a professional team. Like, how am I going to develop? And, and the thing about Blue Wire that this super unique in the podcast and media space, at least, and he really, he nailed this, this is his superpower is that he can develop talent. He knows good talent and he can develop talent. Mm. And he's like, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm like, yeah, man, just go for it. And he's got deals with the win and now NBC sports to do podcasts about, I mean, he's just mm -hmm. crushing it. And he like, you know, three years ago, he didn't even know. I mean, he like, I think he was even out of a job, you know? <laughs> so, well, that, that's just part of the game. And yeah. again, you mentioned something there, which I think is really important. Coachability isn't just, do you take advice from, see, again, what we're looking for in the people we associate with is, do they have the skills and the personality to be there at the end? And if you look at the bell curve of likely outcomes, uh, there are clearly entrepreneurs who are very narcissistic, very sociopathic, do not care at all about anybody else who are successful in life. There's no doubt about it. However, if you look at the most likely outcome, this, the bell curve of life, most people who are successful tend to be empathetic, mm -hmm. tend to be self-aware, tend to be able to understand other people's issues, and basically are not just coachable from the standpoint of their investors, they're actually coachable by life. They take in data and manage it. So when an entrepreneur is being subjected to scrutiny by an investor and they're saying coachability, the reality is it's not necessarily will they feed my ego by listening to me? It's are they self-aware enough to be able to adapt? Because here's a newsflash. Every company I've been involved with, the business models change at least three or four times. Oh, easily. Right? So, <laughs> so not even, yeah. Exactly. Not even, yeah. Right. So if the marketplace is punching you in the head and you're not listening, you're probably going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's, that was the interesting point that, Clay, that Clayton made mm. because, you know, a lot of times you're right. The ego gets in the way. Yeah. Hey man, I just raised a bunch of money. I'm scaling this thing. I know what I'm doing. I'm a hot, you know, like you said, once the balance sheets got a bunch of balance yeah. on it, I yeah. don't know. I don't need your advice. You old right. guy, a crazy uncle Jari telling me to do right. whatever, blah, 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 blah. Right. Right. Um, and the ones that the successful people, not only in entrepreneurship, but I also think in life, I think you nailed it right on the head. This whole idea of, you know, the empathy and the compassion for life and for the people around you. I also think being of service and just generally being curious about the world and not taking it too personal. I mean, I used to take it so personal when stuff would go wrong and this and that, and I would have a big problem with failure. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of get used to the fact that this failure is an option, but never that final result of what's going to happen. I always think of it as this learning process to build this talent stack or skill stack for the next thing. I mean, mm -hmm. the reason why I do the podcast, I think we've talked a little bit about this before. I've talked about it on the show a lot, right? Like I need to learn how to interact more, ask better questions, listen, build my skill stack to actually be a better sales type person. 
mm-hmm. which traditionally has been my massive flat spot. And I don't like to do. <laughs> so I, not only am I bad at it, I hate to do it. And I'm actually being, what, what's been beautiful is I've been interviewing people that are more focused on sales, being introduced to people that are like, well, hey, Jerry, I could help you sell things better. I mean, you seem like you got some good ideas and it's not that hard. You just have to change your men, your attitude and your mindset. And so I've, I've opened to that and I'm like, God, this is, this is what is really cool about the community of entrepreneurship to your point. And, and I think also, you know, what you're trying to do at Marymount, because we haven't even touched on this very innovative, like I personally think spot on way to think about this entrepreneur journey. So I would love for you to explain a little bit about that because to me, it's sort of like the, the, the way we should think about what, you know, uh, McChrystal said about you know, team of teams and this mm-hmm. whole asymmetric kind of warfare, quote unquote, or asymmetric skill sets and yeah. how to build teams that are autonomous and decentralized so that they can go build things. Tell, tell You're us absolutely you right. So it's funny. So I, I call myself the accidental dean because it, it wasn't <laughs> like I, I mean, I was literally driving in the beltway, which is the equivalent of being on the 101 in rush hour. In other words, right, you're not driving right. anywhere. You're just sitting in a traffic jam. And, and I, my house is five minutes from Marymount University's main campus. And I'm on the traffic jam one day and the chairman of the board trustees calls me up and says, what are you doing right now? I said, at the moment I'm in a traffic jam. And he says, I can fix that for you. And, uh, you know, and I started to talk with, uh, with them about, you know, joining Marymount. And, and they recently merged the computer science school and the business school. And they were saying, you know, we think there's synergy between having people teach IT and business in the same place. You've been in the venture industry a long time. You understand technology. We want somebody non-traditional to figure out what to do with this. So I signed on and really it became very much an an entrepreneurial opportunity to remake education. So, Mm. uh, you know, not when I'm not trying to do anything big or anything. But um, honestly, it, that's what it was. It got a, a, a really high quality private university and in a great market that merges computer science program and its business program. So I'm looking at it, it's like, all right, so what do people actually care about these days? Well, employers, what they really care about is don't tell me what degree you have. Tell me what you know how to do. And, and tell me how well you can communicate. Tell me how well you can write. Tell me how well you can think. And, and then we can have a conversation. So, you know, this idea of siloed education of, oh, here's a degree, you're now a specialist in X is just, that is just so old school now, it's just not even right. And then you add on top of that, that a lot of people don't want to go to university anymore, or if they do go to university, they need to get reskilled because the world's changing like crazy. They want to do it as fast as possible. They don't want to spend three years going to learn how to do cyber if their first degree is in English. So... I'm like, all right, so we got we to gotta change how we're doing it. We blow everything up, modulize everything undergrad, grad. So you get a core degree, but then you can drop in your own, basically make your own degree. You want to do a business degree with cybersecurity, knock yourself out. You want to do cybersecurity with business, great. Graduate, undergraduate, we've got doctoral programs. So doing all that neat stuff. And last year, it, it really hit me that, the secret sauce these days for technology and business was creativity and art and design. That the internet, as it's now crushed every other industry, is crushing education, but it's also, it's making everything so much more meeting our society. Artificial intelligence is commoditizing rote tasks. 
what's left? Creativity. Yeah. That's what's left. So I, I went to the leadership of the university and said, I really think that we should merge the art school with the school of business and uh, and technology. And they looked at me and said, really? And I said, yeah, trust me, we should do this. So they said, all right. And that wasn't quite as simple as that, but we merged uh, the art and design. So now it's all in one place and we Beautiful. don't have silos and have departments. Everybody works together. And now we're starting to create really cool interdisciplinary programs that are pretty unique. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm a, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm like any startup now. Now I got the product. Now I got to keep, now I got to grow it and find customers. So right. hopefully over the next year or two, I'll do that and really blow it out. Right. But it's fun. Really, yeah. it's a lot of fun. No, no. And, and, and I think that what's really fascinating about that is you see this convergence of like, as an example, like technology. So the no code movement, the democratization of even production and manufacturing and this code stuff, it doesn't take much anymore to actually code an MVP. The thing that's the real challenge and the risk, and, and I've learned this the hard way over time, it's like, so half the battle is building something, the other half the battle is selling it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and if you've raised, if it took you two years to build it and 10 million, two, two years and 10 million to build it, it's going to take you two years and 10 million to sell it, market it, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. The only way to accelerate that is that if the design and creation piece is integrated with the marketing, PR, sales, creative, because this it's an engine, like it's a flywheel. It, 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 you like almost never stop launching products or improvements or whatever. And the sooner you can kind of figure that out and get that creative all sorts of the, like, almost like a team, like, like you build, you know, you build the all-star team to go after like, or the, or the mega band, right? Like, Oh, I need, I need all these things. You know, I need the bass player and the drums to, to lay down the rhythm and like to mm-hmm. anchor it. I need the vocalist and the guitarist. And maybe I need a triangle guy or a, you know, always need more cowbell, always cowbell more. guy. Right. Because right. you know, whatever. So right. or I need another, you know, electric piano player, whatever. So, the the because it really like as I think was thinking more and more about this it, it it was it was different in the 80s and 90s where it was so heavy on technology mm-hmm. investment and even the semiconductor business right like it, it's actually you needed to figure out okay is someone going to buy this chip before you built it because it took you a year and a half and a couple million bucks to build a piece of silicon which mm-hmm. now is you could buy you know for less than a pack of chewing gum the cost of a pack right. of chewing gum it's like amazing right but you really had to have this kind of you needed to know and it was a huge amount of investment in order to get it nowadays i don't think it's really the technology that's the differentiator i think it's the creativity and the story and the selling of the idea and the iteration quickly so that like, you know, we're not yeah. here, we got to eat, right? So so got to sell it like that. That's the thing well, I've been learning over the last couple. I of think years. that's right. Look, I think there are two different trends going on in our, in our tech community and they're both important. And the first one is um, that as you described it, technology is really democratized. Yeah. You know, software is democratized. Uh, AI is democratized. There's a lot of things going on right now that are driving the cost of creating something new down almost zero. Um, as a friend of mine put it, one of my old friends who was very much part of AOL and creating the, you know, the com- consumer web said to me a couple of years ago, he said, basically what's happened now is the internet is nothing more than a printing press. Right. And, and what matters now is what you do with it. And so right. I think you've got that. But the other trend we've got 
and I'll come back to that trend in a moment, is that people confuse in, um, incremental innovation, which is what we now see a lot of with, with new innovation and new innovation like semiconductor industry when we went from transistors to semiconductors. There undoubtedly are going to be new industrial waves and, you know, what they're going to be around, probably climate would be my guess, and maybe, you know, energy, energy a few other. climate, right. Right. And what I think a lot of entrepreneurs in the Valley and elsewhere, really, they talk about change the world. They sort of imagine themselves being like Bill Gates and or uh, Steve Jobs or, you know, others at the beginning of the semiconductor home computer boom and saying, oh, I'm changing the world. Well, the answer is actually you're not. What you're doing is you're going to change how these democratized tools are used in a new way. Get over yourself, but you can still make a lot of money. And uh, we would be a lot better off if we were just honest about that, right? Yeah, 100%. Uh, the other thing I'll point out is if people are ever wonder why it is that uh, uh, antitrust is getting so much scrutiny right now and monopolization, it's because the biggest threat in a world where technology is democratized is that large, well-capitalized competitors just basically take your idea from you. They don't actually steal it from you, just legitimize the market and just throw half a dozen engineers at it and take it from you. So yeah. um, you know, constraining the fangs is probably the most important thing yeah. for startups right now yeah. that we could do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also, you know, right to start Victor Wang doing that sort of stuff. And then, you know, John Deary over at the center for American entrepreneurship, yeah. trying to figure out these policy things. I don't know if you know both those guys, but yeah, I interviewed John. He was great. It was like, you know, I don't know much about policy, but I was like, you know what you're doing, yeah, well, <laughs> which I'm glad we have, we have people in our society that spend the time to think about these things because it's important stuff. It is. It is. So what, what kind of insights would you leave for, for the next generation coming up? Or, you know, what questions should they ask themselves if they want to be an entrepreneur? That's a great question. And um, so I'll share two stories that really pointed out for me, and then we can sort of wind up with that. So when I was starting Amplifier Ventures, I, I had been in the venture capital industry as a venture lawyer of, of note for many years, uh, working in Silicon Valley and D.C., uh, and um, I went to a friend of mine who was very successful, uh, one of the early uh, guys in AOL. And I said, I want to start a venture fund. And he looked at me and he said, why? And I thought it was a trick question. It's like, well, obviously the answer is I want to become wealthy. And he looked at me and he said, that is just the wrong answer. Uh, because the reality is you should be doing it because you want to do the journey. You know, because I can promise you, if you like the journey, you'll be happy. But if you're going to be only happy if you're wealthy, please don't do it because there's just too much there's too much luck involved in being financially successful as an entrepreneur. You better love the journey. And I thought, no, oh, that's great advice for a rich person to give me, but uh, I, I found it away. And then um, a month or so after that, a, a buddy of mine who uh, was a very successful uh, venture investor who was on my advisory board sat down with me and he said, you know, I, I really want to make sure you understand what it means to be an entrepreneur. And I said, well, I'm sure I do. I've been around entrepreneurs forever. I've helped start hundreds of companies he said, no, you won't know you're an entrepreneur until you go home at the end of one day and you look at your email and something makes you realize you are completely screwed. And then you wake up in the morning, you look at your email and realize the night before you're optimistic about your circumstances. He said, when you look that despair in the face, then you'll be an entrepreneur. So I put those two things to one side and I went off to raise my fund. And I got to the point where I had an anchor investor of note 
which had caused a bunch of other people to want to fall in. And I was heading towards a really nice first closing as a first time fund manager. And the night before, basically, I, I got to the point where it was time for people to sign docs and the lead investor basically did a, did a bait and switch and changed the terms. And it would have required me basically working for him on a salary with very little upside. And I, I said, I was interested in doing that. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you, your, you know, the $10 million I promised you. And I went from having a fund to not having a fund. And of course, of about six hours, everybody else got spooked around away. And I, and I remember a day or two later feeling I couldn't possibly be more screwed than it was at that moment. And, and I thought, screw that guy. I'm going to do this anyway. And it took me 18 months to raise the $10 million again to start the fund. But here's the point. It was a complete freaking mess, but it was my mess. And I realized that what this was about for me was it wasn't making a lot of money. As long as I could find a way to make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, I, I was fine. It was about the journey. And, and that's, and I've had, I was, um, I was 18 years ago and I've had ups and downs and ins and outs, but I would never in a million years trade my life for somebody else's. And so I think what I would say to the people listening is if you feel that way, if you're, if what I'm saying to you resonates with you, then you have the entrepreneurial Jones and you just need to figure out how to scratch it. If what I'm saying to you is completely alien to you, don't feel bad. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, but truthfully, you're not going to enjoy the journey. Don't become an entrepreneur because it's cool. Don't become an entrepreneur because you want to make money. Become an entrepreneur because you can't not do it. <laughs> and, and then be true to yourself. And that's the best advice I could ever give um, because that will carry you through and you'll be happy because it's what you want. It's going to be your mess. That's a, that was so awesome. Thank you so much for that. I think that's a great place to end. Thanks for your time. Stay safe. Hey, you too, man. You know, let's, yeah. let's just stay messy. Let's just stay messy. <laughs> <laughs> stay. Yeah. Stay messy. I love it. Thanks again. All right. Well, keep in touch and, um, you know, definitely keep in touch. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help you, man. Appreciate that. Thanks, Jonathan, for the awesome interview. It was such a pleasure to talk with you and all of your insights into entrepreneurship. And as promised, here are some of those actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Jonathan. Be coachable. Wherever you're just starting out or at the point where you're ready to scale, being able and willing to listen to advice of mentors and advisors can make a difference in your success. I think this is probably one of the most beneficial traits of an entrepreneur is being coachable. Always be willing to listen to someone else, you know, get good advisors, get good mentors, and be learning constantly and always be willing to be like, yep, there's a better way. I'll do a better way. Super important to be coachable. Assemble your team as you would a music group. You need to share a vision and a purpose, but everyone should offer something different. Empathy and respect for each other are also critical for an effective team. And I love the analogy of pulling together a band or getting the band back together, as we always like to say with some of the guys I've done multiple startups with, right? It's always good to have these complementary skill sets and people that you really respect and have your back when you're doing a company because a company is pretty hard. So, you know, think about all the pieces of the quote unquote music group that you're trying to, you know, get, get together. 
Know that entrepreneurship is a messy journey with a lot of curves, a lot of zigs and zags. So be willing to adapt to all of that and really enjoy the ride. And we've heard this so many times from so many different entrepreneurs. It's really the journey. There is really no destination in this gig. Um, you have to really be able to go with the zig and the zag and not be in it for the fame, fortune, and prestige. Although, of course, we all want to make money and we all want returns on our investors, for our investors, excuse me. But sometimes that just doesn't happen. You just got to be like, I'm on the path and this is what I'm going to do. So there you have it. Those were some actionable insights I got from my awesome interview with Jonathan. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.